Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephania Cox. Here are today's top stories. The House Oversight Committee plans to begin contempt of Congress proceedings against the FBI for failing to turn over a document on President Biden. Former Vice President Mike Pence files paperwork to run for president. His formal announcement is expected later this week. Find out what his campaign could look like. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. had a busy day today. At two town hall meetings, he spoke out about a declining democracy and censorship of free speech. The White House issues a stern warning about a Chinese warship, and lawmakers condemn Beijing's suppression of freedom on the Tiananmen Square massacre anniversary. And Apple shows off new products at its developers' conference. Artists are excited over the company's new virtual headset, but find out why some are protesting. Tensions between the FBI and the House Oversight Committee further escalating over Biden documents. Committee Chairman James Comer announced his latest actions today. At the briefing, the FBI again refused to hand over the unclassified record to the custody of the House Oversight Committee. And we will now initiate contempt of Congress hearings this Thursday. Given the severity and complexity of the allegations contained within this record, Congress must investigate further. Earlier today, the FBI brought an internal document to Capitol Hill for Comer to view, but refused to hand it over to the House. It's an informant memo that reportedly alleges then-Vice President Joe Biden was involved in a bribery scheme with a foreign national. At the meeting today, FBI officials confirmed that the record has not been disproven and is currently being used in an ongoing investigation. The growing feud between Congress and the FBI comes amid a flurry of GOP investigations into the Biden family and their business dealings. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has indicated support for holding the FBI in contempt. The 2024 Republican presidential primary race just got more crowded. The latest candidate, former Vice President Mike Pence. Former Vice President Mike Pence filed paperwork with the Federal Election Commission on Monday to enter the race for president in 2024. Pence is set to formally announce his candidacy on Wednesday, ahead of a CNN presidential town hall that evening. And I don't have anything to announce today, but I can tell you. When I got time to announce, come this Wednesday, I'm announcing in Iowa. Pence has long been expected to enter the race, and it sets up a potential clash with his one-time boss, former President Trump. The two grew increasingly distant from one another in the aftermath of the January 6th Capitol breach. As he mounts his presidential bid, Pence will likely seek to distinguish himself from Trump on socially conservative grounds. Pence currently polls in single digits among GOP candidates far behind Trump. Also on Monday, another Republican ended speculation about a possible presidential run with this announcement. We've taken the last six months to really kind of look at things where everything is, and I've made the decision not to run for president on the Republican ticket in 2024. Obviously, a lot goes into that decision, but um, it's been quite an adventure, but not the end of the adventure by any means. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu was re-elected to a fourth two-year term last fall. He's been a frequent critic of Trump within the Republican Party. Two other Republicans are expected to join the GOP primary race, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. So far, declared candidates in the Republican primary include Trump, 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Pence will formally launch his campaign for president on Wednesday in Iowa. NTD will livestream the event at 1 p.m. Eastern. Now we turn to a potential legal case involving former President Trump. Attorneys for Trump met with Justice Department officials today. This comes as a special counsel is reportedly wrapping up a probe into whether the former president mishandled classified documents. NTD's Sam Wong has the latest details. We don't have any comment. Trump's attorney trio, Lindsey Halligan, John Rowley, and James Trusty, declined to answer questions as they left the Justice Department in Washington, D.C. on Monday. The lawyers had requested a meeting two weeks ago with Attorney General Merrick Garland, reportedly to raise concern over what they consider prosecutorial misconduct by special counsel Jack Smith and his team. Smith is probing Trump's retention of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida, documents the National Archives sought to reclaim. Shortly after the meeting, the former president posted a message on his true social account, saying that he did nothing wrong. Lawyers typically meet with Justice Department officials before an indictment is issued to attempt to convince prosecutors not to bring criminal charges. Sources say the meeting did not include Garland or Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. Worth noting, Trump is the first U.S. president to face criminal charges. The former president pleaded not guilty back in April to 34 felony counts brought by a Manhattan grand jury, which accused him of falsifying business records related to a hush money payment to adult film actress Stormy Daniels. As a Republican frontrunner in the presidential race, Trump often described himself as the victim of a politically motivated witch hunt. But as of now, what this meeting means for Trump remains unclear. Sam Wong, NTD News. Turning to the Democrat side, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has taken a strong stance on censorship. Today, he sat down with Elon Musk and explained why. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy spoke at two public forums today. In a Twitter Spaces talk with Elon Musk, he thanked Musk for recognizing how important free speech is to Americans. He said Americans want the right to have conversations and debate rather than totalitarianism. He has vowed to stop censorship in social media. If I'm elected, I'm going to call the heads of all of the social media companies into the Oval Office to, and, and have a, uh, a conference and not walk out until we have a fit way figured out how to make this work and make it consistent with democracy. He said he believes social media companies are being pressured by a powerful government to censor and that it is not their choice. Kennedy was banned from social media platforms in 2021 for comments about pandemic policies. His Instagram account was reinstated on Sunday. A Meta spokesperson said the suspension was lifted because Kennedy is an active candidate for president. This morning, he talked with radio and TV host Michael Smirkanish. He drove home the message that both political parties need to make an effort to be templates for democracy. That our democracy functions, that they're doing retail politics, that they're having town halls like this one, that they're out meeting the public and, and debating their opponents. There's so many people now who believe that our whole system is rigged against them. And there are many, many Americans who believe that the election system is rigged. 
He acknowledged the polarization in the country and said it stems from the media and a distrust of the government. I've watched the trustworthiness of government decline steadily since I was a kid. Uh, and even, you know, when, when my uncle was assassinated, 80% of the people trusted the government. He said it's about 22% now, and that's because of a number of things, including what he calls lies about the Vietnam War. He also spoke to Musk about policies in the Biden administration that he disagrees with, including the Ukraine war, China relations, and the border. Arlene Richards, NTD News. 34 years after the Tiananmen Square massacre in Beijing, a bipartisan group of lawmakers is drawing attention to the ongoing fight for freedom in China today. Joining us now live from Capitol Hill is NTD's Iris Tao. Iris, tell us more about it. Good evening, Tiff. So today marks the 34th anniversary of when this picture of the tank man was taken, which is one day after the Tiananmen Square massacre in Beijing took place on June 4th, 1989. And on that day, the Chinese military opened fire and killed hundreds, if not thousands, of student pro-democracy protesters. And here we are 34 years later in the U.S. Capitol, a group of bipartisan lawmakers, including House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the chair and the ranking member of the House House Select Committee on China, all coming together to voice support for the ongoing fight for freedom still happening in China today. Watch. Now, unlike other democracy wall posters, uh, Wei actually signed his name. And for speaking his mind, he spent 16 years in Chinese prisons. 16 years. Uh, he has been called the Nelson Mandela of China. And for his activism, he has received too many human rights awards to count. But I think perhaps the title that best sums him up is simply the longest running thorn in the Chinese Communist Party's side. Do you stand with that man who stood up to power? Or do you stand with that tank and the brutal Chinese Communist Party which sought to quash freedom? Many, like you two and others, stood with that man. And so many Chinese people were exiled or worse for standing with that man. And today, the White House was warning about what it called a growing aggressiveness from Beijing after the Chinese warship basically crossed right in front of a U.S. destroyer this past weekend. Let's take a listen. There was absolutely no need for the PLA to act as aggressively as they did. It, it won't be long before somebody gets hurt. Uh, that's, the, that's the concern with these unsafe and unprofessional intercepts. Uh, they can lead to misunderstandings. They can lead to miscalculations. And the White House asked that during a visit by two U.S. officials to China this past weekend, they did bring up the issue of human rights to Chinese officials on this anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. Tiff. Iris, thank you. And for more on this, NTD's Chris Spears spoke with Lily Tang Williams, a survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution and a congressional candidate for New Hampshire, to get her take on this momentous anniversary. Now, you've been outspoken about the history of communism, the dangers of communism. What does the Tiananmen Square massacre mean to you? Well, in my eyes, that was since I was born. I mean, like I saw with my own eyes um, that the biggest and democracy, freedom movement, and peaceful in mainland China. And unfortunately, it was brutally cracked down. And then you never saw that again. But I saw bigger, even bigger, bigger 
you know, protest in Hong Kong in 2019. I was very excited about that. And then, you know, of course, student leaders were arrested and China took over Hong Kong. So I, I think that we should never forget the people who protest in Tiananmen Square who died. And I know their case was not overturned. You cannot even Google like a, in China internet to say June 4th Tiananmen Square massacre. So they want to cover this up and censor the information. Very sad that the mothers who trying to get their kids name corrected and waiting for justice. Lots of them had already passed away. But the Hong Kong is the one remind us if you cannot even light up a candle on June 4th evening now to have a memorial, that's a reminder to the whole freedom-loving people in the world. Once the communists took over, then you're not going to have the freedom even to light up a candle. Hong Kong is a reminder. But I think the Hong Kong students, people still did that and risk to be arrested. And we know that in Hong Kong just recently, the police there arrested one woman and detained 23 others. So this legacy of suppressing free speech, it seems to be continuing. Um, what do you think this says about how the CCP views the massacre? Well, there are cases still categorized as a county revolutionary. That's why you know, the, the soldiers in Beijing could not kill students because they knew they were peaceful protesters, just wanted to have some political reforms, have dialogues with their leaders. There's nothing wrong with that in a democ democracy. But under dictatorship, CCP, you don't have right to even ask to have a dialogues with the leaders. And Hong Kong people are trying to do that, trying to have their elections. And, uh, but uh, you know, when they lost to the China's national security law, and they have no future either. That's why 100,000 you know, Hong Kong youngsters who left Hong Kong, it, it's very sad to me to see history repeating itself. Lots of those Hong Kong students, they are mom, dad, fled communism to go to Hong Kong to be free. And I have seen this uh, specter of communism does not die. They are all over the world. You know, you see Brazil promoting socialism, which is the state leads to communism. I just traveled to Italy and traveled to Scotland and the same thing. And uh, so I, I feel like I have a unique voice and a unique story to share and wake up Americans to say, we don't want to go down that path. Lily Tong Williams, survivor of Mao's Cultural Revolution and congressional candidate for New Hampshire, thank you. Thank you for having me. A close call with China. Footage shows a Chinese warship comes dangerously close to a U.S. destroyer in the Taiwan Strait. Here is NTD's Juliet Song with the story. 150 yards. That's how close the Chinese warship was when it cut in front of a U.S. missile destroyer on Saturday. The American ship forced to slow down to avoid a collision. A Canadian Navy commander saw the incident firsthand. The fact that uh, this was announced over the radio prior to doing it clearly indicated that it was intentional. Mount Ford was on a Canadian vessel doing joint drills with the U.S. warship. The close encounter was in the Taiwan Strait, the body of water separating Taiwan from mainland China. Maneuvering close to each other, 150 yards uh, is, is very scary. 
uh, and you, you don't ever want to be that close to another vessel because too many things can go wrong and you can actually have a collision. The close call came days after another dangerous encounter when a Chinese jet cut in front of the nose of a U.S. aircraft, the American jet shaking from turbulence. Several hundred feet. It's dangerous. And back to the near collision at sea. America's defense chief reacted to the news, calling the case troubling. To be clear, we do not seek conflict or confrontation. But we will not flinch in the face of bullying or coercion. But Beijing is hitting back, saying the U.S. should, quote, reflect deeply and correct its wrongdoing. Close encounters can become deadly. In 2001, a Chinese fighter jet collided with a U.S. spy plane, forcing it to land on China's Hainan Island. The Chinese fighter pilot died in the incident. The Chinese warship provocation comes as a senior U.S. State Department official is in China. Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs Daniel Crittenbrink landed in Beijing Sunday, June 4th. As for what message the timing of this visit sends, we hear from Steve Yates, former Deputy National Security Advisor at the White House, for more. Steve Yates, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. So a senior U.S. official, Daniel Crittenbrink, is in Beijing. He landed Sunday, which was June 4th. It was actually the 34th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. What does the timing of this visit, what kind of message does this send? Well, I can't imagine it came as a surprise to someone who's supposedly familiar with Asia that June 4th is a sensitive anniversary. And uh, so we have to assume that somewhere in the White House and State Department planning process, they knew that they would be arriving on this date. And you would think that with them knowing it, they would want to convey some kind of a message. But if they intended to, that definitely didn't get out. So it leaves the impression of them somewhat normalizing the day making it routine business to engage with the party that was responsible for a massacre that the whole world saw and that China has tried to erase from the memory of the Chinese people ever since. Seems to be at least a bumbled move. At worst, it shows that the pathology of engagement has kind of taken hold and that this desire to de-risk is really about making concessions to try to bring China back to the talks. And this does come after Secretary of State Blinken's kind of watered-down speech marking the occasion, which did get some grumblings online. How do you read that, especially as the U.S. sees this, quote, thawing relation with Beijing? Well, it comes from a group of people who campaigned loudly about how allies had not been respected and democracy was not being sufficiently promoted around the world. Uh, and so if they wanted to set that standard when they were in opposition and running for office, I think they need to be held to a higher standard now that they appear to be breaking, bed, breaking bread with the world's leading authoritarian surveillance state the purveyor of the worst human rights abuses on record in this current era, and they arrive on the anniversary of a known massacre because the world saw it. Uh, and they have very little to say. Even if you compare what the State Department and the White House said on the June 4th anniversary of that last year versus this year, there's a palpable brevity to what was said this year, which I think symbolically minimizes 
human rights and democracy with regard to U.S.-China relations. And Steve, Critton Brink's visit comes just a day after Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin spoke in Singapore, where he blasted China. That's after the warships almost collided in the Taiwan Strait and also a recent encounter with the Air Force plane. What do you make of Beijing's increasing aggression? Well, Beijing seems to be conveying by its actions that they feel like they can get away with these things with impunity, that there aren't going to be significant consequences for them to bear. Uh, they see an administration that wants to walk away from decoupling and talk about de-risking, but Beijing is very comfortable with risk. And so, and they're also comfortable pursuing their own decoupling. So I just see that these signals are uh, basically indications of weakness on the part of the United States. They're not actually standing up for the interests of allies who have quite a lot at stake, whether they're in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, or Southeast Asia. Uh, and they also don't seem to be achieving very measurable results. We look to be the ardent suitor in this relationship where we're just dying to have a new date with a Chinese official. And yet that official is playing hard to get and is not that interested in us. Uh, so uh, I don't think it's a good look for the United States, but substantively, we haven't had meaningful progress on the issues that the administration itself says are its priorities. And on top of that, our national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, is saying despite all these tensions, he still sees a meeting between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden could happen. What do you make of that? Well, part of my brain says, well, of course it could happen. We, there's lots of opportunities ranging from the UN General Assembly summit that comes every September to APEC and other kinds of fora where leaders tend to meet, either on purpose or accidentally on purpose. So certainly it's logically possible they could meet. It seems a little crazy, though, that the administration keeps emphasizing that the goal is to get to a meeting. That is the most establishment way of talking about foreign policy that exists. Meetings are a means to an end, not an end in themselves. And everyone who's ever had to walk the hallowed halls of government knows it by sad experience that getting to a meeting doesn't mean you've gotten measurable results. And what you concede on the way to the meeting in some ways can take results off the table as well. That, I think, is what a lot of us observing the Biden administration are most concerned about. Definitely lots of stake here. Steve Yates, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. The State Department is promoting diversity, equity and inclusion programs in Iraq. The department says this will help create stability in the region. Entities Arian Pazdar spoke with a former State Department official about the new program. The Biden administration is set to award $12 million to universities in Iraq. That's to teach Iraqi students how to combat climate change and educate them on gender diversity. The State Department posted this grant offering, saying it will award up to $4 million each to three universities. The offering says that, amongst other things, a successful project must include course offerings related to gender issues and should include studies related to climate change. People in that part of the world are not interested in talking about climate change or, or transgenderism. They're worried about survival. Bart Markoy is a former Foreign Service officer with the State Department. He says people in Iraq are more concerned about political stability. 
The State Department commented on the grant offering, telling the Washington Free Beacon, we know that more inclusive governments are better equipped to address global challenges. Diversity, equity and inclusion are not only a matter of human rights and fairness, but when presented together, promote stability, prosperity and security. As a former State Department official yourself, do you think this will help creating stability in the region? No, nothing will create more instability than this kind of outreach. These are the kinds of things that get U.S. embassies and facilities attacked in uh, various parts of the world. This is not the first time the U.S. tries to implement liberal ideas around the world. A 2021 government report found that the U.S. spent almost $800 million for programs specifically and primarily to support Afghan women and girls from 2002 to 2020. The report found some programs were designed based on assumptions that proved to be ill-suited to the Afghan context and the challenges that women and girls faced. Do you think that investment paid off or are we kind of repeating a mistake here by making a similar investment in Iraq now? That investment paid off hugely for the Taliban and for Iran and for all the enemies of America. He added that this funding might have contributed to the chaotic Afghanistan pullout in 2021. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Coming up over the weekend, a plane took a wrong turn and was later chased down by F-16 fighter jets. We bring you analysis from a retired Air Force general who used to fly fighter aircraft. And as Apple announces new products at its developers' conference, artists express excitement over the company's new virtual headset. That and more when we come back. Welcome back. Over the weekend, a plane entered restricted airspace over Washington, D.C., causing it to be chased down by F-16 fighter jets. NTD's Jason Perry brings us analysis from a retired Air Force general who used to fly fighter aircraft. The United States was on high alert on Sunday as F-16 fighter jets were scrambled to chase down a small aircraft that got off course. The Cessna plane, which reportedly had four people on board, took off from Tennessee and was bound for New York. However, it caught the attention of authorities when it made an unexpected turn. Flight-aware data showed that the plane appeared to reach the New York area and then suddenly made a nearly 180-degree turn. It later entered restricted airspace over Washington, D.C. The F-16 fighter jets were then deployed to intercept the Cessna, creating a sonic boom as they chased the aircraft. The noise caused quite a stir among the people in the area. And despite repeated attempts to contact the pilot, the Cessna remained unresponsive. And the plane crashed near the George Washington National Forest in Virginia. Virginia State Police confirmed that the crash had no survivors. When the airplane just keeled over, went straight in, it meant it was out of fuel. I spoke with retired General Thomas McInerney, who used to fly fighter jets for the United States Air Force. He explained what the F-16 pilots did as they approached the small aircraft. They're trying to get the uh, contact of the pilot. And I'm sure they flew up in close formation. They said they popped flares so he would talk. 
and uh, I, I suspect they were close enough that they could see that the pilot was slumped over. He also mentioned that this was the same type of plane that lost cabin pressure with golfer Payne Stewart aboard before it crashed in 1999. And he added this. In, in, a, in a fighter plane, if we lose our pressurization, we're, we've got a mask on all the time. So we'd have oxygen, we don't have this problem. In a case like this, those pilots do not wear a mask all the time. They could, maybe, maybe they ought to uh, put it in as a safety valve. A preliminary report is expected within three weeks, while the full investigation could take up to two years to complete. Investigators will not only be trying to determine what caused the crash, but also making recommendations for enhancing aviation safety. Jason Perry, NTD News. Our hearts go out to the families and loved ones affected by this tragedy. A Los Angeles elementary school has become a flashpoint for LGBTQ issues involving children in California during Pride Month. Police officers had to separate protesters from counter-protesters during a recent clash. Protesters outside Satakoy Elementary School on Friday wore t-shirts that read, Leave Our Kids Alone, and carried signs with slogans such as Parental Choice Matters and No Pride in Grooming. It comes after a transgender teacher's small pride flag displayed outdoors was found burned last month. These people want to force us back in the closet. They want to impose that every, you know, child should be heterosexual, that the only correct relationships are straight ones, when there are wonderful, beautiful families that attend this very school that are queer, that are happy and wonderful, and they would like to tear those families apart. And quite frankly, I'm not here for that. And I got to say, if you're going to bully these kids, not on my watch. I'm not going to sit here and just stand for it and do nothing about it. Tensions at the school have been rising since last month when a social media page began urging parents to keep their children home from the school's pride assembly. Nobody has an answer to that. Nobody can answer why they're doing this at an elementary school and not at the high schools or the middle schools where, you know, this is probably a little more appropriate. Governor Gavin Newsom also criticized the protesters, calling it a, quote, purge effort going on here by the far right that we have not seen for decades. Also in California, Apple kicks off the week by unveiling new technology, but some are protesting at its Worldwide Developer Conference. And it is David Lamb reports. It's a big day for Apple, as the Cupertino-based company is unveiling its new technology, including an augmented reality headset and two powerful Macs, in which they say are the most powerful they've ever built. On the first day of Apple's week-long annual Worldwide Developers Conference, the tech company introduced the Apple Vision Pro, a big move into a new category since the Apple Watch nine years ago. Apple said the headset has a 3D camera and microphone system to capture videos and pictures. Oh, it's so exciting to see the headset. I mean, this is a beautiful, beautiful device. Um, and most importantly, the things that are being created for it. They didn't really mention live performance, but this is going to be a really, really big deal for live performance. I'm very excited to, whenever I can finally try one, to get my hands on it. Uh, that's the big highlight, just being able to work in AR, not being restricted by external monitors or anything like that. You just put on a headset and you can get to work. You can pair a Bluetooth keyboard and mouse and all that stuff with it. Apple also announced a 15-inch MacBook Air, 
powered by an Apple-designed M2 processor chip. The tech company introduced improvements to its iOS software, such as the name drop feature, to more easily share contact information. Others focused on safety and security, like a check-in feature to tell contacts when a user has arrived safely at a destination. Apple said that it was improving the auto-correct feature on iPhone keyboards. At the same time, the Writers Guild of America, who's been on strike, are also on site. Basically, all of our proposals were related to writer compensation and protections. The strikers point to Apple's $400 billion revenue reported last year and the growing popularity of AI. Right now, with the rise of AI, we are facing an existential crisis because the studios are looking to replace human workers with with artificial intelligence, even though what we contribute is the actual human experience. And so without us, there would be no film, there would be no television, there would be nothing to watch. As a result of the strike, the union says several projects for Apple TV Plus have been delayed. Apple's Mac Studio and Mac Pro was also revealed at the conference, with orders available today and is expected to be available on June 13th. In Cupertino, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, the Securities and Exchange Commission is suing Binance. It's going after the biggest cryptocurrency exchange in the world and accusing it of misusing customer money. And Saudi Arabia will make a deep cut to its oil output as the summer travel season approaches. OPEC Plus seeks to boost falling oil prices. Stay tuned for more when we return. Welcome back. The Securities and Exchange Commission is suing Binance, the biggest cryptocurrency exchange in the world. This is the latest in SEC's chair Gary Gensler's crypto crackdown. Is Binance the new FTX? And it is Colin Fredrickson has more. The SEC has sued Binance. It accuses Binance, which is the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange, of operating an illegal trading platform in the United States and of misusing customer funds. The SEC says Binance CEO Changpeng Zhao, commonly known as CZ, took his customers' money and put it into his other firms, like his trading firm Sigma Chain and his other firm Merit Peak. The SEC also accuses Binance of secretly letting U.S. investors use its platform while at the same time it publicly said they weren't allowed to. SEC Chair Gary Gensler says CZ engaged in an extensive web of deception and calculated evasion of the law. In response, Binance says it's disappointed by the SEC's action. It says it will vigorously defend itself from the misguided lawsuit. If Binance took customer assets, especially U.S. customer assets, and allocated them to, another, uh, to a separate company called Merit Peak Limited, and didn't adequately disclose and get consent by each of the subscribers, that to me is more than just a minor mistake. Ron Geffner is a partner at Sadison Goldberg, as well as a former SEC lawyer. He says it's too early to tell what the outcome will be, because too much is unknown. So if they've made misrepresentations to U.S. persons, they would be fined. Now, depending on how egregious those misrepresentations were, it could lead to criminal prosecution as well. 
Still too soon to tell. The SEC filed 13 charges in total, including operating unregistered exchanges, misrepresenting trading controls, and selling unregistered securities. Binance will be slapped with some fines. Um, they might have to draw back some of their lending practices, draw back some of their retail grade loan options, right? But once they do that, and once we all can you know, figure out what the best path forward is, I do think that they're going to stick around. Aaron Rafferty is the founder of Standard Dow, a firm that's involved with blockchain technology. He believes there must be a lot of truth to the allegations, but that they may not bring Binance down completely. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Saudi Arabia will make a deep cut to its output in July. This is in addition to a broader OPEC Plus deal. This comes after a meeting over the weekend. That oil production cut could push gas prices higher as the summer travel season inches closer. But how much of a tangible impact will it have on the U.S. economy? Here's Don Ma with NTD Business. Saudi Arabia will make oil production cuts in July. This is part of a broader oil output limiting OPEC plus deal because the group faces flagging oil prices and a looming supply glut. OPEC plus decided to reduce production by a total of 1.4 million barrels per day. And here to talk to me is Patrick Dehan, petroleum analyst at GasBuddy. Now, the previous OPEC Plus oil production cut we had did have an impact on gas prices, but an argument can be made whether it had a long-term sustained impact on gas prices. So I'm wondering, how should we feel about this one, Patrick? Well, there probably will be a negligible immediate impact. Oil prices are trading up, as is expected after such an announcement. Um, that could push the national average in the U.S. up anywhere from three to six cents a gallon over the next week, maybe seven to ten days. The more significant impact could lie down the road as the U.S. summer driving season has begun. This is taking supply out of the market at a time that the U.S. and the global economy badly needs it. Uh, U.S. oil inventories, when you consider the SPR as well, are down over 126 million barrels from a year ago. So. OPEC and Saudi Arabia's production cuts are certainly going to make it more difficult for inventories to get back to healthy levels. So what you're saying is the, the impact of the production cut will have an impact to a degree, but the bigger thing that we should be concerned about is the summer season right around the corner. Yeah, most certainly. As summer progresses every day, there's going to be less supply in a market that is looking stronger than anticipated. Jobs more uh, jobs numbers continue to look good. The U.S. economy continuing to uh, uh, avoid the recession level. Uh, and that is going to put more pressure on inventories as we get into the bulk of the summer driving season. As demand goes up, supply is now going to be curtailed in the months ahead, led by the July cut from Saudi Arabia of over, uh, or I should say, a million barrels that they could extend into August. All right, just, just one more thing. Let me get your best guess on what the Biden administration's reaction will be on, on all of this. Well, it certainly is going to make things a little bit more challenging and put the administration in more of a box than before. Now, Secretary of State Blinken is heading over to Saudi Arabia this week. It certainly could add an element of discussion um, that we could see uh, unveiled here at this point this uh, later this week. But it certainly does add a little bit of pressure to the administration. They did have a plan to refill the SPR. They had hoped to do so, but now with OPEC continuing to hold a very tight line in oil production, uh, oil prices may not get down to the range that the administration wanted to refill the SPR. All right. Thank you so much, Patrick. Gas Buddy, great seeing you again.
Thanks for having me. Now, Goldman Sachs analysts said the meeting was moderately bullish for oil markets and could boost December 2023 Brent prices by between $1 and $6 a barrel. Now, this is depending on how long Saudi Arabia maintains output at 9 billion barrels per day over the next six months. If acronyms like VR for virtual reality, XR for extended reality, and MR for mixed reality make your head spin, you're not alone. NTD conducted a reality check at the Augmented World Expo and learned about some of the latest trends and products that excite the XR community at large. Started in 2010 as a small get-together of a group of virtual reality enthusiasts, the Augmented World Expo has grown into one of the largest XR community events for thousands of companies and professionals. So, regular laptops, you've got uh, a 13-inch monitor, maybe you've got a 15-inch monitor. That's sort of the extent of your screen real estate. This gives you the form factor of a 13-inch laptop and the size and weight of one, but you've got a 100-inch monitor. So welcome to your space top, and you can go ahead and get started. Uh, so you can use the trackpad, the keyboard and the trackpad, just like you would with a normal laptop. Uh, so you can start by pressing the, the OK. Oh. Step back a little bit. <laughs> so we got browser. Yeah. And the balance here is to strike between all of that sort of whiz-bang cool stuff versus making it simple, dead simple to operate. Anybody who's used a laptop will be able to use a space top. The space top gives you the ultimate privacy as nobody can see your screen except you. And the company can customize and then add on glass for you if you wear corrective lenses. We're trying to bring AR backwards into the present because right now it's so all future, eventually it'll be cool. This is a bridge. This is the device that bridges those two things, the, the productivity and convenience of a laptop with the magic of AR and the benefits of having sort of massive screen real estate and that ability to paint information on the world around us. Other than visual census, one of the other ways to experience the virtual world is through the senses of touch. And Haptex is the industry leader in haptic gloves that gives users the most realistic feel of touches in their hands. We generate compressed air, we, we push it through valves that direct it into the right spot and we put it inside gloves and those that air depresses your skin that simulates the feeling of contact with a real object and uh, we can do this in virtual reality with amazing precision. MarketWatch predicts that extended reality market is growing at 45% projected to surpass $1.1 trillion by 2030. Coming up in golf news, a sophomore from Stanford makes her pro debut and turns heads with a performance not seen in more than 70 years. Find out more after the break. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with the story of a shocking debut on the LPGA Tour. That's right, Tiff. 20-year-old golfer Rose Zhang, who just two weeks ago captured her second straight NCAA title, 
won her LPGA debut at the Mizuho Americas Open for the weekend. The sophomore from Stanford, who won 12 out of 20 collegiate events in her two years there, became the first player in more than 70 years to win her debut, netting her a cash prize of more than $400,000. The events of the Whirlwind Weekend seemed surprising, who said, quote, I honestly didn't even expect to make the cut. And the reason why I say this is because I don't think about my expectations a lot. I think about playing the golf course. I think about trying to shoot the best score that I can. Zhang, who's a communications major, told NBC's Today Show that her immediate plans are to return to Stanford for finals week and then to move out of her dorm. And in tennis news, at the French Open, American Coco Goff won in straight sets today to advance to a third straight quarterfinals appearance. The win actually sets up a rematch with reigning champion Iga Swiatek, who beat Goff in last year's finals. Meanwhile, on the men's side, both 22-time Grand Slam champion Novak Djokovic and number one ranked Carlos Alcaraz won Sunday to advance to the quarterfinals. Now with Rafael Nadal absent due to an injured hip, the two are the favorites to win and both are just a win away from a much anticipated matchup in the semifinals. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, no NBA games, but in the NHL, Game two of the Stanley Cup Finals takes place in Las Vegas. The Golden Knights lead the series 1-0 after winning the opener 5-2 on Saturday over Florida. And finally, for you baseball fans, seven games are on for tonight, featuring the hottest team in the league, the Texas Rangers, who've won now 24 of their last 33 games dating back to April. They host Adam Wainwright and the St. Louis Cardinals. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff? Back to you. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And that's for all from us for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.